The countries that are most likely to have a coup are countries that have already had coups, right? It's like the seal has been broken, the taboo has been broken. And is it really that bad to have a coup against a government that came to power through a coup? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, September 7th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to explain the string of coups unfolding across Africa, most recently in the oil-rich nation of Gabon. There have been seven coups in Central and Western Africa over the last two years alone. And as Julia explains, as the U.S. pulls back from the continent, Russia and China are happily swooping in to make nice with these new African regimes. And later, Teddy Schleifer joins Ben to explain the wild backstory behind the Silicon Valley billionaires trying to build a new city next to San Francisco. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe. Julia, let me tell you a little story about the tell news me. here in the United States. Uh, the other night, I was just sort of flipping around cable. As I told uh, Dylan on Slack uh, earlier today, I cut the cord officially because of this contract oh, dispute mazel. going down between Disney and Spectrum here in LA, Charter, the parent company. Anyway, I was like, you know, I can't watch the US Open. can't watch certain baseball games. I can't watch college football. I'll just, you know, watch the news, even though I try to tune it out after work. Put on MSNBC. You know, maybe there would be some news on MSNBC. Nope. Lawrence O'Donnell was interviewing Neil Katyal oh about God. his trip to Burning Man. <laughs> uh, and the the tweet that the Trump co-defendant sort of attacked Neil Katyal for. Anyway, I was like, what the F is this? This is not the news. This is not the news. This is This is like Extremely Twitter-focused commentary for uh, left-leaning wine swillers. I say all of this as a long-winded preamble to the fact that there has always been a blind spot toward, Mm -hmm. drumroll, Africa in the American media. Not all the time. Last week, there was a devastating apartment fire in Johannesburg that killed over 70 people. That was on, like, the nightly news, whatever. Uh, I told you before coming on this podcast, I was an African studies major. I care about this stuff. But, you know, it's not that we can expect American viewers to necessarily care about what's going on uh, in Africa. It's always gotten the short shrift in terms of international coverage, despite so many important trends and geopolitical factors playing out there when you think about Chinese and Russian involvement, both militarily and economically. But good Lord, there have been how many coups in Western and Central Africa over the last few years? I think seven coups in Guinea, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, Chad, Sudan, and then most recently, Gabon. And by the way, I don't say I think there's been that many coups. I was literally looking at a map and reading off the map as I said that. But, you know, first of all, these are focused in Central Africa and, and Western Africa. A lot of these are former French colonies. Why are all these coups suddenly happening? I feel like there's been a bunch more this year. Well, uh, basically since 2020, there's been 
this wave of coups across Western and Central Africa, and specifically in the Sahel region. But I had the same question as you. And of course, the answer is extremely complicated because uh, some of these countries, for example, Burkina Faso had two coups in the span of nine months in 2022. Mali had three coups in nine years in 2012, Mm -hmm. 2015, and 2022. And each of those coups in each country are have specific domestic dynamics. Like the coup in Gabon was basically a palace coup. And it was a cousin of the Bongo family forcing out the son and heir of the Bongo family. And in places like Burkina Faso, Mali, Chad, it has a lot to do with the jihadist insurgency that is happening in in the northern parts of their countries, closer to the Sahara. But all of it is playing out in this larger context that I find very interesting, which is that we're in some ways in Vladimir Putin's, because it always comes back to him, his dream world, which is, you know, in 2007, he went to Munich and he said the Cold War was actually really great. And I want a new Cold War because there's, uh, during the Cold War, there wasn't just one global hegemon, there were two, and there was kind of a balance of power. And so what you have now in Africa is that it's not just the West plundering and pillaging, it's also Russia and China. And it's kind of like we've gone back to the Cold War, in a sense, where mm. in, the, in the kind of post-independence period, a lot of these African countries were fought over by the West and the Soviet Union, and there were proxy wars and coups. Basically, there were so many coups during the Cold War, I didn't know this until researching this piece. At the height of the Cold War, there was something like nine coups a year in the world, mm. not just in Africa, but Latin America, Asia, et cetera, because mm. in part because of the Cold War. Then after the end of the Cold War, Africa went through this period of mass democratization. The West, America specifically, was really pushing this and it would sanction countries that did have coups and wrap them on the wrist, etc. But now it's not just America on the world stage, it's China, it's Russia. And each of those has their own interests in Africa. For China, it's economic. For Russia, it's political and economic. And for the US, it's security, counterterrorism. And it doesn't so much matter anymore whether a democratically elected government was toppled or not. It's like, who can we do business with? And Mm -hmm. these domestic factors that cause a coup to happen, like it's not like the coup leaders in Gabon or in Niger are like, hmm, let's do a coup and saddle up to China. You know, they're going to do a coup no matter what, but this time they can play off the various world powers against each other and keep them off their backs and get more of what they want. And in a place like Gabon, I mean, we think of these as sort of small, dusty countries, but there's a lot of energy, a lot of oil in these places, and these big global powers want access to that. So they do have some chips. Obviously, the Cold War era that you're talking about, that was the sort of height of post-colonial fervor all around the world. A lot of that was a reaction to uh, European colonization uh, and Western imperialism generally. African nations rose up against Belgium and France and Portugal and kicked out the powers. And then you had the, in many cases, like socialist slash communist sympathizing leaders come in. 
some of them were later toppled. Some of them just mutated into like Robert Mugabe fascist types. How much of these this latest string of coups are against the West? Or is that just sort of an atmospheric thing that, you know, is always endemic to African politics? They can't just all be discreetly about individual domestic factors in each country. Well, I think they are and they aren't. They are about discrete factors, but then it's happening in a broader global context. So, for example, in Niger, the coup happened specifically because the head of the presidential guard found out that he was going to get fired. And so Mm. he moved and took power. That has nothing to do with the French. But in the meantime, it's like, okay, well, who can we get, you know, before the, the previous government was working with the French who were helping us with security issues, fighting the jihadists, they also weren't doing a very good job. Fuck the French, mm-hmm. get them out. And the Russians are right there who are like, we're happy to provide security. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, is it really about anti-colonialism if you're swapping one European power for another? And Russia is not, you know, in the same way that the Soviet Union was in, in Africa during the Cold War out of a brotherly spirit to help redistribute wealth and help the workers seize the means of production, you know, in Angola. They were there for purely imperialist colonialist reasons as well. Mm -hmm. And in some ways that's playing out in Africa again, but now you just have a bigger mix of players. There's also like a bandwagon effect to these things, like, or at least there was in the Cold War era. Your neighbors across the border, there's a coup. Oh, we can coup too. It can infect, you know, unstable governments. So there's a concept called the coup trap, which you probably know about, where the countries that are most likely to have a coup are countries that have already had coups, right? It's like the seal has been broken, the taboo has been broken. And is it really that bad to have a coup against a government that came to power through a coup, right? And then also, again, if you zoom out and ha- and look at it through from a kind of broader global lens, if your neighbors had a coup, and nothing happened to them. They didn't come in for sanctions that, you know, maybe they were suspended from the African Union, but mm. nothing of real import happened to them. Then, you know, and in fact, the Chinese continued to do business with the with the government that overthrew the last government. So then you think, well, okay, maybe the costs aren't so bad. The only thing we have to think about is, you know, if we try to have a coup and we lose and our heads will literally roll. So amid all of these coups going down, the coup trap, just stepping back a second here, what is the United States' general posture toward Africa at this point? I mean, I know they pulled out non-essential personnel when there was the coup in Niger and uh, Trump pulled some troops out in the previous administration. Uh, You know, are we ceding this whole continent (laughs) to Russia and China? Because they sympathize with Russia and China a little more than we do. I mean, BRICS, the BRICS countries are BRICS, plural, because South Africa joined up. And and again, like a lot of these countries, even if they're toggling between regimes, are still skeptical of the West. And and because their revolutionary movements, you know, were powered by unions and socialism, like there's, you know, they're a little more sympathetic toward Russia (laughs) and China than we are. So, you know, do those two countries... Are they flexing these days in Africa and we're just stepping back? Absolutely. I mean, she has had so many trips to Africa. He has brought African leaders to Beijing for one-on-one meetings, which 
the Americans have not done. I mean, Trump called them shithole countries. Biden is going on an Africa trip soon, but that's, you know, toward the end of his term. American companies don't really need much from Africa. And what we need, we get through the Chinese. Things like uh, rare minerals that we need for various, you know, electrical components. It's easier to just buy them from China, which does the dirty work, environmentally dirty work of mining them in Africa. That And it's mm-hmm. dangerous work and dirty work. So why not just get it from them? Mm-hmm. But there are other countries that are also doing business there. Turkey, Saudi Arabia, France. You know, there are other players trying to get in the game. In some ways, you know, um, in talking to you, I was, I'm thinking... I referred to it as kind of going back to the Cold War, but in in other ways, it's going back almost to a kind of colonial era where you have Mm. all these outside countries competing to get at Africa's resources and not necessarily treating them as the sovereign nations that they are. Not to be Tom Friedman, but when I was out in Iowa a few weeks ago, an Uber driver who was an immigrant from Sudan, and he said, like, he can't vote. But he would vote Republican, theoretically. He doesn't like Joe Biden. But he can never, ever, ever vote for Donald Trump because he called African nations shithole countries. Interesting. That one's done. Yeah, very interesting Tom Friedman column to come on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Talking to an Uber driver out in the Midwest. Julia, thank you so much for Inside Africa. I'm happy to talk about the continent with you anytime. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about the billionaires trying to build a new city in the Bay. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Teddy Schleifer to talk about a new frontier of Silicon Valley billionaire hubris, which is this plan to build a new city across the bay from San Francisco. Teddy, I'm pro-growth. Let's build it. Explain to me why this has caused such a stir. Sure. I think there are two reasons why. The first has to do with the process, and the second has to do with kind of the actual goal. So for people who uh, are new to this, which I admittedly was new to this, I never heard of this until two or three weeks ago, there had been sort of a, a secret group of investors that had been trying and successfully buying tens of thousands of acres of land in Solano County, which is northeast of San Francisco, has cities like Fairfield and and some other places that uh, most folks uh, who listen to this podcast have not been to, maybe you've driven through it to on your way to Sacramento or something like that. It's mostly farmland. And this is a planned city that for the last six years had been secret. These real estate purchases started in 2017. And so part of the backlash that is coming to this is because of the process. It's because no one knew who these people were that were buying this land that we now know are some of Silicon Valley's most prolific investors and philanthropists. The second reason why I think this caught so much backlash is it's very easy to stereotype this as rich people's you know, passion project as they seek to build utopia with flying cars and drones and you know, where everybody lives forever. I, you know, maybe this is my personal belief in kind of the, uh, the goodness of some of the people involved, but I would push back against that narrative for two reasons. A, this is not like a place where, where tech billionaires are going to live themselves. You know, this is a 
the idea here is that this is a place where housekeepers and service staff and maybe some more poorly paid Bay Area employees, uh, tech companies would live and maybe they can work remotely. Maybe they can take advantage of more flexible policies or, or maybe they can just be kind of super commuters to you know, an office in Menlo Park. This is meant for them. The second thing is I, I feel like the media falls for the, the trap often about where, where anytime any wealthy person does anything interesting, like the cynicism just kind of can be overpowering. And suddenly any improvement that is, you know, meant to bring some progress to, to the world immediately just kind of falls um, prey to our, our cynical impulses. And, and I, I'm feeling at least as of this recording, a bit tired of it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Teddy, to your point, we should say that obviously the Bay Area has some of the most obscene housing prices in the world, which is certainly contributing to the homelessness crisis, the drug crisis, all kinds of other social issues that are plaguing San Francisco right now. It's incredibly hard to build anything new there. People are very resistant to density. They're resistant to changing building codes to build higher. So I agree. It, to it totally makes sense to stake out other land where you can basically start from scratch. But you mentioned there are some really big names involved here, which is part of the resistance. People don't love the idea of a bunch of potentially out-of-touch billionaires coming in and with utopian ideals of, of, of building a new city from scratch. Talk to me about some of those big names. Who, who's leading the project? Who's involved? Who's throwing in money? Sure. So the guy behind it is named Jan Sramek, who has sort of been covered over the years as sort of this like precocious Goldman Sachs trader who, you know, is managing tons of money from a pretty young age. But over the last five or six years, he's really gotten involved in, in Solano County. He now lives there. And he had a lot of connections to wealthy Silicon Valley people, primarily through Mike Moritz. Mike basically then helped Jan get many of the other wealthiest people in tech, Mark Andreessen, Lorraine Powell Jobs, Reid Hoffman, Patrick Collison, who is maybe maybe an acolyte of, of Mike Moritz and is the founder of Stripe. You sort of have this kind of A-list, you know, A-team of, of Silicon Valley movers and shakers who have all invested somewhere between $800 million and a $1 billion into buying all these parcels of land. So, so Moritz, I think, is the person who is the most interesting. Um, and he's somebody who I wanted to write about for a while, and I've kind of been looking for the opportunity to do it. So our story this week up on Puck, calling it the Mor Moritzopolis or the Mike Moritzopolis, sort of a joke. But the, the gist here is that Mike Moritz has sort of undergone a, a reinvention yet again. He is 68 years old. He's had some health issues over the years. But this is a guy who sort of started out as a pretty well-known Silicon Valley journalist at Time Magazine, wrote a book about Steve Jobs and Apple during the 80s. And then for the last 30, 40 years has been, you know, I would say the at times, at least, you know, the de facto leader of Sequoia Capital. Mike wrote the first kind of major institutional check into Google uh, in the late 90s, and he sort of rose alongside Sequoia. And now, you know, he's no longer the chairman of Sequoia, and he has sort of found this new passion in sort of political and philanthropic advocacy. And this isn't politics per se, right? And this is not, you know, Mike making a political contribution, though he's doing plenty of those now, and it's not him making a philanthropic contribution, even though we write about in our story how his, his foundation is like five times bigger than it was five years ago. But this is definitely, whether you want to call it impact investing or, or kind of philanthropic capitalism or, or whatever, this is a 
a moonshot idea that is meant to basically chart a, a better future for these people and maybe make some money along the way. So Moritz is the character we, we decided to focus on because he was the linchpin of this, at least financially. And I think he is a character who a lot of people probably think they know, right? Like we're not, we're not breaking any news that Mike Moritz is a influential person in Silicon Valley, but he is sort of going undergoing a, a late in life renaissance that is very interesting. And this is case in point. You argue in the piece that, that you think, you know, despite some criticism of this project, Morris is basically doing this for the right reasons. He cares about alleviating housing prices. He cares about building something new for all the kinds of people in, in the San Francisco area who are having trouble finding a place to live. But I assume it's also fun for some of these guys, too, right? Like Mark Andreessen, Patrick Collison, Reed Hoffman. These guys are builders. Mark Andreessen famously wrote a, a important op-ed a couple of years ago saying it's time to build. There also seems like there's a long tradition in general in tech of these quixotic attempts to build new utopian cities. Peter Thiel did it with his Seasteading Institute. I don't know if that ever got off the ground. There was also um, Tolosa. I don't know if you remember this, which Mark Lore proposed two years ago, building this $400 billion mm. eco-friendly city in the middle of the desert, which now seems sort of ill-advised. But this is this is not the first attempt that we've seen out of Silicon Valley of guys like Moritz, of guys like Mark Andreessen trying to build from scratch. Do you think that this project has more legs? I mean, is there something about this that feels more real than any of those? I mean, I guess they, they have the land. They have actually been buying it. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, this is this is like I don't know if they're going to win, but like this is happening. This is not like a chin stroker on a podcast, right? And and the the money has been raised. Like there are people who owned farmland, you know, five years ago who have sold it to a firm called Flannery Associates, which was sort of the uh, the name of the the firm that was doing the real estate purchases. This is happening. And look no further than the reaction to get certainty on the idea that this is happening. I mean, the political establishment, whether they're local mayors or, or congresspeople or military honchos who are concerned about the land that is nearby an Air Force base in, in, the, uh, in the county. These people are, are very upset and they are mobilizing because they think this is real. I, I, I feel like that tells you that this is not just some tech billionaire pipe dream. I mean, they've methodically gone about this with impeccable discretion. And, and this just seems like the most significant effort of all of these that you've talked about, Ben. And, you know, the discretion is now backfiring. I mean, I totally understand their argument for why they were so secretive for so long, which is essentially that they thought other people would basically start buying the land or refuse to sell if they sort of knew the net worths of the people that were a part of this consortium. But the flip side of that discretion is there's basically negative goodwill, right? And they're, and they're starting this in a hole, you know, taking their tough medicine, uh, and insiders involved in this acknowledge that. They know that this was kind of a botched process, but like it kind of had to be botched. Like botched maybe isn't the right word because it was intentional. Like this was an intentionally botched PR campaign. And now they're sort of trying to make amends and get people to invest in their vision of what this county can be like, where they create jobs, where they can build, you know, transit and and make a pretty poor area a little bit wealthier. And you know, the, the next step here, Ben, is this is likely to be on the 2024 ballot. And by this, I mean an effort to kind of rezone this farmland into more residential and commercial friendly property laws. And we'll see if they succeed. I mean, obviously, this is going to be something to watch closely because 
the net worths of these people means that if they want to spend, you know, $300 million in ads to supplement the $900 million or so they've made in land purchases, they can have at it. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> we will see what happens indeed. It sounds truly awful. Like I, I cannot imagine anything worse to do with my time than, than get engaged with California landowners, land use policy, zoning regulation, the NIMBYs, the Environmental Review Board. I mean, th- this truly sounds like the 10th circle of hell, but good luck to Mike Moritz. Good luck to, uh, to Andreessen. They've got a lot of work ahead of them. Teddy, thanks as always for coming by. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.